This week, are the years of defence spending cuts finally coming to an end? I will be fighting hard for the resources that we need. I'm confident that my colleagues will look very sympathetically on the needs that we have. Meanwhile, British troops prepare to head to North Africa. I'm not clear about what the mandate is. What's the legal basis for being there? In a week that's seen British troops promise to another mission overseas, the Prime Minister's insisted defence cuts will soon be over. David Cameron's already promised overall spending would rise after the 2015 election, and even though the economy's slipped back since then, today Downing Street said that promise stands. The MOD's even published 10-year equipment budget, totalling £160 billion. All this as Britain offers up to 330 personnel for Mali and nearby Africa. States to help in the French-led fight against Islamist militants. I spoke to the Defence Secretary before we came on air and I asked Philip Hammond whether the Prime Minister's words mean there won't be further cuts after 2015. We have got a spending uh, review process and I'm not expecting to be exempt from the process. Um, but of course I will be fighting hard for the resources that we need to deliver Future Force 2020 and I'm confident that my colleagues will look very sympathetically on the uh, needs that we have to deliver that uh, uh, output from the Strategic Defence and Security Review. So it's a strong hope rather than a guarantee? Yeah, I don't take anything for granted. There is a spending review process. Uh, the country faces a real challenge over making the, the, the books balance. Uh, we're still recovering from a very long and damaging uh, recession on the back of the financial crisis. Uh, and uh, I will be part of that process, but I will fight very hard for those resources and it's um, uh, I think we've had good indication that the Prime Minister is sympathetic to our case. You want £8 billion put aside for unforeseen circumstances by that I understand budget overruns. Given the aircraft carrier programme for example almost doubled in three years between 2008 and 2011 that does seem a really small figure. The £8 billion you're referring to is the unallocated portion of the equipment plan. That, so for the first time, instead of uh, allocating to projects far more than the budget we've got available, we've allocated to projects only £152 billion out of the £160 billion equipment budget so that we've got a bit of it left over to allocate to other priorities later uh, in the decade. Um, but going to the point that you've raised about the aircraft carriers, um, the reason that the cost of the aircraft carriers rose so dramatically was because the previous government couldn't afford the in-year funding for them and therefore deliberately delayed the programme, okay. allow allowing the contractors who were building them to jack the price up almost without limit. We're not operating things like that anymore. We're only ordering equipment when we have a full budget over the whole of the budget period to pay not only for the cost of the equipment, but for the cost of operating it as well, once we've got it in service. Well, we'll hear more from the Defence Secretary a little later in the programme. But first, I want to bring in BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Hello. What do you make of what he said there? OK, well, first thing, budget control is much better than it was. I mean, they're really getting it sort of organised. But, you know, when he says, well, um, uh, 
we're going to hang in there and I'm going to fight my corner, etc. Well, he fought his corner in 2009, 2010, and we've had an 8% reduction in defence spending. So he didn't succeed. He failed. All his ministers failed. Uh, the other thing, he says, I'm not uh, expecting to be exempt. Well, he better not be accept, be, uh, think he's <laughs> going to be exempt because the Chancellor at the moment and also the Cabinet Office, which extends it, are looking at projects and they're going to say in 2015, which is the figure we're talking about, where it was going to be a 2% uh, increase, it's only going to be a 1% now. It doesn't matter what he says, it's only going to be 1%. And in 2015, there's going to be an election. And also in 2014, people are coming out of Afghanistan and a prime minister who's trying to get re-elected is going to turn around, or his people are going to turn around and say, OK, let's do hospitals, let's do education, let's do law and order, etc. Because you'll not convince the public you still need the same amount of money because you're not fighting a war in Afghanistan, which is one of the reasons the is so pleased to be getting a gig done in West Africa because you've got to be fighting somewhere to show that you need what you've got. How much does the, the future spending on defence uh, really and the budget depend on how Trident will be replaced and who will pay for it and decisions surrounding that? I don't think the Trident bit will affect the budget. Now, for example, at the moment, there's 20, let's talk £20 billion pounds into the successor project, which is what the, the replacement charger uh, Trident is called. Trident, uh, uh, Trident is called successor project. £20 billions. That, according to people in the Cabinet Office that I talk to, say... Actually, we're looking at the out years. That's a hundred billion pounds. Now, just supposing you said, okay, we're going to get rid of Trident or we're not going to replace it as we plan to do. And so we're going to save, let us say, a hundred billion in the long term or even 20 billion in the sh- a short term. That is not going to go back into the defence budget. Trans- would ju- Chancellor would just say, you didn't need it, so you haven't got it. Stay with us, Christopher. Well, the scale of Britain's contribution in Mali has grown rapidly from a pair of transport planes through to surveillance aircraft and now hundreds of personnel. Officials insist they'll be in Mali and neighbouring states in a non-combat role. John Deverell is a former brigadier in the army who's advised the government on crisis resolution. He warns British forces could find themselves targeted by Mali's militants. People have mentioned the possibility of mission creep. It could happen, it's possible, but very unlikely. Clearly there are risks in terms of the people we could be up against. Whilst we're only there in a training capacity, there will be the need potentially to defend ourselves. We shouldn't take on operations like this unless we're prepared to deal with the risks which are themselves a measure of our sincerity in taking the operation in the first place. Well, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, now retired, served in Iraq and led the UK's training mission in Sierra Leone. I spoke to him earlier about the speed of developments in Mali. I'm not surprised because the growth of al-Qaeda across Africa from Somalia onwards has been well documented by US Central Command and more latterly Africa Command. And spread of al-Qaeda here is dangerous. It's dangerous because it will spread northwards to the Mediterranean littoral, and it could spread southwards to areas where we, Britain, have much more direct interests in our relations with Nigeria and Sierra Leone and Ghana, for example. I am surprised because the uh, French have a very particular relationship with Francophone Africa, and they are not surprisingly protective about that. And also because the French army is hot stuff. They did wonderfully well, brilliantly, in Bosnia in the dark days there. And I've seen them and operated with them in Afghanistan more recently, where I can tell you they were up there with the best of them. From your experience in Sierra Leone and in Iraq, what are the main challenges in such a mission? I'm not clear about what the mandate is. What's the legal basis for being there? Uh, Is it a UN mandate or is it a 
bilateral agreement between France and Mali? And, and if so, uh, where do we fit into that? What protections have our soldiers got? Have, can they protect themselves? If they protect themselves and, for example, use lethal force, uh, are they immune from prosecution? What does it actually say that we're there to do? Because until you know what you're there to do, you can't lay down tasks, you can't assign the right people, the right resources, you, you can't come to a view on the time scale. If you're going to reform the security sector, it takes time. It takes years, in fact, because security sector reform is not about training and equipping people. It is about creating structures within that country which will do those things for themselves and, and be sustainable. If you don't recognize that from the start, then you will do it wrong. I can't put a time scale on it because I don't know what the, the tasks and missions are. Uh, but it took three to five years in Sierra Leone uh, to get forces there to a professional standard that they could take proper responsibility for themselves and not need, for example, an over-the-horizon commitment from us. Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, and that question of the mandate for British troops in West Africa was one I put to the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond. The rules of engagement will be force protection rules. They will, they will only be able to engage in self-defence um, because they're not there in a combat role. They're there in a training uh, and support role, and actually most of them won't be in Mali at all. They'll be training uh, troops from countries like Sierra Leone, Gambia, Ghana, um, probably in their own countries before they um, deploy to Mali. Uh, and, of course, the operation in Mali, led by the French and Malian uh, forces, uh, and the operation that the neighbouring African countries will be supported, is mandated by a UN Security Council resolution. And how clear is the intelligence on the ground? Well, as you would expect, I can't um, comment uh, about the intelligence picture that we have of the situation on the ground. So how long has the MOD been working specifically on the problems in Mali? How many people have you been allocating to this issue? Well, we've, uh, I mean, more broadly than the MOD across government, the National Security Council, um, we have been aware of the growing challenge in Mali for certainly well over a year um, the stresses that there are in that country, the um, uh, the fact that al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations uh, were establishing themselves in the northern part of Mali. Um, so this is not something that's come completely um, out of the blue, and it's something that we've been clear ever since we started looking at it um, was a challenge to the UK's security. Mali is not that far away, and having... AQ-affiliated organisations uh, able to exercise freedom of manoeuvre, to organise, to plan uh, and launch attacks on the West uh, from areas in Mali is extremely dangerous and we have to make sure that they do not have that freedom of manoeuvre. The popular kind of thing that's being said about Mali at the moment, it's the new Afghanistan, it's Britain's uh, Vietnam... Are you sure how long this training mission will last? Because we spoke to a former commander who helped, who commanded the operation in Sierra Leone who said it took three to five years to get the forces up to speed there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how um, members of parliament are able to think of apposite phrases which then pass into the uh, popular parlance through the news me and media. I don't think it's Britain's So how many uh, years Vietnam, do you think? And I don't think it's the new Afghanistan. I think what we're doing in Mali is a very carefully bounded operation 
which very effectively leverages the willingness of local countries in the region to do the heavy lift. So we've got um, you know, seven or eight countries in, in that area willing to contribute troops to stabilise the situation in Mali. And how what long? We, what we are doing is offering to train them, the English-speaking uh, countries among them, uh, and the international community has agreed at Addis Ababa on Tuesday to provide some financial support uh, to help them in that mission, just as we're doing in Somalia, where it's African troops who are doing the fighting, but with uh, international community financial support uh, and training. And do you think it may take longer than the few months you first thought? And may, might it take more trainers than you're allocating now? Well, I don't, I don't anticipate that it will take uh, more trainers. And I anticipate that the training mission is likely to be quite limited um, in duration. I can't tell you whether it'll be, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks, four months. Uh, I don't know yet. We haven't scoped in detail what is required. We haven't got the detailed requirement uh, of the countries um, involved. How about two years or five years or perhaps seven years? I don't think so. I'd be very surprised if there was an ongoing requirement to deliver training over that kind of timescale. But we have got liaison officers now in the the countries concerned. We are talking to them. We are assessing their current state of capability and their training needs. But look, I want to make this point. The organisations that have been uh, present in northern Mali are a threat to our security. What we are doing here is making a very limited input of support uh, to ensure that they are contained and dealt with by local regional forces, not by British boots on the ground, not by British combat troops. I think that is the right way to use our particular skills and capabilities in very limited numbers to make sure that someone else is able to contain this problem for the benefit and security of our nation. And finally, if I could just ask you specifically about the situation in Syria. Russia has condemned the apparent airstrike by Israel forces on the Syrian border. How worried are you about the conflict there spreading? Uh, I'm worried about the uh, atrocities being committed uh, in Syria. And I'm worried that uh, Russian support, in particular, for the Assad regime has prevented the rest of the international community bringing more pressure uh, to bear on that regime. And if the Russians uh, are focused on this area today, that's good. But I would urge them to focus on their obstruction of UN Security Council resolutions that would put more and more effective pressure on the Assad regime. Defence Secretary Philip Hammond. Uh, Christopher Lee is still with me. Christopher, six months ago on this programme, you called Mali a new Afghanistan. Philip Hammond says the MOD's been looking at the country for a year, but it has felt like Britain's been playing catch-up. It's it's not just catch-up. I mean, they've been looking at it for a year. They should have been looking at it for four years, which is when the first report started to go into, first into the uh, MI6, the SIS. Uh, nobody pulled it together in during the, the, the Intelligence Committee, the JIC, Joint Intelligence Committee. Nobody at all pulled it together. I was in Whitehall just two nights ago talking to people, how much do you know about it? And one guy turned around and said, look, the Prime Minister's going off to Algiers tomorrow. That was on Tuesday when I was there. Going off tomorrow, he's taking John Saws, who is the head of the controller of MI6 with him, and a whole bunch of pointy-head intelligence people. 
because we know very, very little of what's going on on the ground. We can talk to our special forces, which we've got in there. We can talk to local contacts. More importantly, we can talk to the oil companies. But they can only tell us what's going on locally. We haven't got the bigger picture. I I suppose if that's the case, that we know so little about what's going on on the ground, uh, it's almost impossible to say what the timescale of our commitment would be. You're absolutely right. You, You can't tell because you don't know where it moves. I mean, for example, the classic thing is the French now have three uh, taken three towns, the three important towns, including Timbuktu. So they take those. It means that the the other guys, uh, the ter- so-called terrorists, the Islamists, have actually pushed off off into the desert. So the French say, now what do we do? Because unless we can bring in African troops who are good enough to control it, and certainly if they're Malians, they can't. The Chadians are quite good. But if, unless we can do that, these guys will simply come back. What's quite interesting is that uh, when we talk about training, it's not just sort of uh, teaching people to march in a straight line, how to fire a mortar, etc. The most important thing is teaching command, control, and communications. And that is the big headache. And that's why people like Riley, General Riley, say, it could take five years to do this. It's not just a, a, a phrase drew, dreamed up by some backbencher. It is practical soldiering. Well, also joining me today is Noman Bernotman. He was radicalised in Libya, but since then has abandoned extremism and is now president of the counter-terrorism think tank, Quilliam. Uh, Norman Bernotman, Norman Bernotman, thank you very much for your time today. We hear about Islamist militants in Mali and other North African states. Is there a common cause between groups in Mali, Algeria and, say, Somalia? Yeah, the common cause, it's the ideology itself. They're fighting the same war, you know, because both of them, they adopt the same ideology, which is called the Salafi Jihadist. Al-Qaeda has a global jihadist agenda, as you say. Are these militants in Mali really the same, or are they adopting the Al-Qaeda brand for their own purposes? Or indeed, is Al-Qaeda hijacking them for its purposes? Basically, they started as a local group. You know, if you talk about the, if you're referring to Al Shabaab, it's it's uh, it starts as a local group, and they were not far from Al Qaeda ideology. But gradually, when they involved for many many years in this war, they ended up like as a, a, a part of Al Qaeda, and they are officially now Al Qaeda members without a shadow of a doubt. And voluntarily, they 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 ask for that, and Al Qaeda they accepted them as their branch in. In the Horn of Africa, so they, they are the same group without a shadow of a doubt, and this is very important to understand exactly the nature of the enemy and the identity of the enemy who you're fighting against. David Cameron has been to Algeria this week, offering help against militants there. He's spoken about a generational struggle, something that could last decades in North Africa. Is he right? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, spot on. I think exactly he revealed the reality and the truth behind this uh, conflict. I, I, I support that statement 100%. And you, Christopher? Yeah, it is, it is perfectly clear that nobody knows for how long, but that doesn't matter. What we have to understand, and we'll understand it from people like No Man here telling us, is the extent of, is that seen, doesn't matter whether it is or not a threat, is it seen as a threat, to, let's say, EU countries, to the United States, etc. Et and if so, what will they do? Let's take one small example. At the moment, there are drones operating from six African countries. That's American and one British uh, drone unit, which is in Senegal, in Dakar in Senegal. You don't start to put those resources into... West Africa and as far as away as Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Tebi, etc., unless you, you think you've got, A, a problem, B, you can't get the sort of resources you want in to deal with that problem, and C, 
unless you think you're going to be there for a very, very long time. And that's why most of the people that are running these things have got Afghan experience. Norman, what do you think so far of the military strategy with the French and with Britain's involvement in Mali and Africa? Look, there's a, <clears throat> there is a difference. I think the, the French doctrine of fighting uh, insurgency or counter-insurgency strategy, it's, it's, it's quite different from the, let's say, the Americans or the Brit one. And I think they developed very good credibility and they are well-known, you know. How are they know. different and, and why do you think they're more credible? Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, they, they have more, I think, let's say, intelligence-based uh, a strategy, rather like a very large military campaign with huge media and propaganda, you know. I think the French, they, they know exactly what they are after. They have very crystal clear objective there and they will stay there to persuade these targeters. And one more important issue, and here I would like to say, it's uh, it's 100% confirmed to me, you know, from other sources in Africa, most of the fight now after the phase three of the campaign, now I think it's it's about to end, I think recently, when, when, when the French troop with the Malian help as well, they will secure the main cities up north. I believe, based on information, most of the fight, you know, to chase Al-Qaeda members all over the region, it will be done by the Chadians because they already sent their best and they are very, so very good fighters. So how do you stop fighters. it? You must obviously have to go to the root, stop the radicalization in the, pro in, in the first place. Yeah, this is the, the missing side. This is the gap. Here's the problem. You cannot win this war by launching a large-scale military operation without specific objectives, you know, practically speaking, because this is what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, the same story. It's the ideology itself. And by the way, every time we give them a war, they will survive. And the question is, Al-Qaeda now, is it stronger or weakened? This is the most important thing. So, Norman, I think Norman, you changed your ways. You changed your views. What did it for you? No, actually, if you, talk about, if you talk about my personal one, I'm from the old generation, and I think Gaddafi regime during the 80s played a major part, I think, of my point of view. And then I went to Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, which was well-justified cause, you know. But myself, if you ask me personally, you know, I've always, you know, understand the struggle, you know, and conventional struggle against conventional armies. It's a political one, you know. Either you justify it from a religious perspective or you have another ideology, but at the end of the day, it's a political one. Why I'm saying this, it's not just God's work. That means I am, as a human, I should be able to change my mind and to say, hang on a minute, there's a U-turn because we failed to deliver. I have to look for another approach because it's it's my responsibility. It's a human act. This is the main problem with this generation, Al-Qaeda generation, terrorists, you know. They are very, very dangerous. What do you think would be your view of success in this struggle? I think if we manage to change the strategy itself, it should be like political security strategy rather than military one. Because we view, look, and in UK, we know that everybody, you know, United Kingdom and United States of America, they are the cornerstone, you know, of this conflict. If uh, I think, I think to send troops with no combat role there, it's a right decision. I believe so. You cannot win this war at the global level without involvement of UK, without a shadow of a doubt. We know exactly this business. But I think if we don't have a real strategy to tackle the root cause of this conflict, we will fail without shadow of a doubt. That's why I said when the prime minister he said it's a war of generation. I support that, and he, I think he, he was right. Norman Benotman from the Quilliam Foundation. Thank you for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit, Red. 
One of the biggest worries for many Forces families is how to make sure their children get the best education possible. Service children's education is the focus of a new inquiry by the Commons Defence Select Committee, an example of the military covenant in action. Yesterday, the heads of the three families' federations gave evidence to the committee at Westminster. Catherine Spencer, head of the Army Families Federation, says for many parents the biggest problem is getting into a good school and settling down. We've got numerous reports of children finding that they've moved schools and they've ended up, you know, maybe at the end of Key Stage 2 studying the Vikings three times, but they've never done the Romans, so they, they miss chunks of education. While Kim Richardson from the Naval Families Federation says the three services could do more to help. When they move their people has an impact on when the children sort of um, start school. Um, so I think, I, I think it isn't just about the schools and the, the number of places they have. Each of the services has a part to play here. Christopher, this isn't a frontline issue, but it's a very important one for families, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's got a direct link to the front line, though. Happy family if, at home. Happy family at home. Uh, you know, you send a guy to Afghanistan or to Senegal or whatever. He wants to know that it's comfortable at home. It's always been difficult to do that. And this is not a new issue, but this is the first time it's been looked at properly. Well, on the line now from Westminster is the chairman of the Defence Select Committee, James Arbuthnot. Thanks for your time today, James. The military covenant says children from forces families should get the same education as anyone else. Do you think that promise is being kept? Well, it's too early for us to say yet because we've only just begun this inquiry and we had a really helpful and useful evidence session yesterday from the families' uh, uh, federations and I think that uh, what we've just been listening to uh, shows what a good job they do, frankly. Um, uh, but we are going to have to take evidence from a range of different people, including uh, from the children themselves, to see what they think about the education they're getting and from uh, the Ministry of Defence. So when we've taken all that evidence, we'll then come to a view as to whether a good job is being done. And did anything particular stick out from what you heard yesterday? Well, it was, we covered a wide range of different things and there was, uh, there was, as I say, some really useful evidence given. But always the, uh, the key part about educating the children of service families is what you do in relation to mobility. Because service families have to move more uh, than other people, uh, they have to move schools and, as we've heard, their curricular change. They uh, find they're doing one thing several times and the other thing not at all. And it is because of the, that mobility that we've got to make an extra effort to help service children in their education. I suppose also the kind of thing that I've been hearing is that um, the, the need to actually prioritise forces children, in some ways that can also be a, a backfire in certain areas because some of the schools are getting oversubscribed. Well, I think the thing that the uh, families' federations were concerned about yesterday was that they didn't want a degree of resentment to build up in the local community because uh, the, the children of service families might be being queue-jumped, for, for example, over those who lived in the local area for years. And we, we recognised and understood that. But uh, as against that... Uh, the point was raised that if you only find out exactly where you're going to live and if you don't actually move into the 
area at a convenient moment to get your school place, then the local families will have advantages over service children, which puts the service children at a disadvantage. And so, uh, so all of these things are very delicate to manage, and we're going to need to take a lot of evidence before we come to a view on what the right thing is. And you said you wanted to hear from children, presumably parents as well. Tell us about this forum that you can get involved in. Definitely we want to hear from children, and definitely we want to hear from parents, and, and both of them, uh, both in person and on the website. The website... Sadly, we haven't actually got a name for it yet, but it will be uh, up and running as from Monday. So, uh, anyway, there's no point in my giving out a website address over the air. We'll get the details on our website. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. James, I'll um, Sorry. If you just Google the Defence Committee on Monday, you'll find out how to how to get hold of our web forum. Thank you. All right, James Arbuthnot, thank you for your time today. Um, Christopher... Um, Looking ahead, um, Philip Hammond earlier said he's worried about the situation in Syria. Russia condemning Israel over this apparent airstrike. Is the conflict there about to spill over and escalate? I think it's starting to already. Um, it was interesting that um, Arif uh, Kakavi, who is the head of military intelligence in Israel, he was passing through here, then on to Washington last week. He was getting a briefing he was getting a briefing on the movement of SA-17, the Russian-supplied SA-17 missiles, which are surface-to-air missiles um, in Syria. Also, the disposition and the readiness state of two battalions of chemical warheads. And the Israeli fear, and now the American fear, is that certainly the SA-17s are being moved uh, down to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And that's what the strike, apparently, apparently, that's what the strike is about. Because if they got in there, um, then they can be used against Israeli aircraft and whatever for the chemical weapons. Enter also uh, Ahmadinejad, President Ahmadinejad of Iran, who is now coming up. There's an election coming on later in the year, and they're saying an attack into Syria is an attack into Iran. And that's an example of why the whole thing, what's going on in Syria could spread right the way through to the Gulf. OK, Christopher, what should we look out for next week? You've I got 20 seconds. <laughs> uh, 20 seconds. I would think about the operational readiness. I think we ought to look at the operational readiness of uh, the Patriot missiles in Turkey. Have a look at that very carefully because you'll then understand what the Syrian capability is expected to be. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests, Noman Benotman, James Arbuthnot and to Christopher Lee. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us via Twitter here at BFBS SITREP at our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye. This is SITREP on BFBS.